Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Do you use Slack at work? Is your email inbox overflowing? Has any of this tech made our work better? It's device and virtue. Hello, welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I'm Adam. And I'm Chris. Hey, today's episode is about work in the age of communication overload. Oh my god! And we're talking about an app that I sort of can't believe that we have not mentioned until now in our series of podcasts because like so many people use it. Do you use Slack? Slack. Everyone uses Slack. <laughs> I use Slack. I mean, whether you have to or not, right? Yes, absolutely. Work chat app. I started using this app. Gosh, well, I, to be honest. Way back when. <laughs> Way you back were an <laughs> alpha consumer. We know. We know. It's true. I just started using it two years ago. <laughs> well, that's because you worked for a Christian organization. Oh, man. Yeah. Before that, it was all email and instant messaging. Right. Okay. Yeah. I guess that counts. And email, actually, I think we're talking about that a lot today. Also, counts. Email transformed work 30 years ago and now Slack is doing it all over again. Right. right? Like in theory. Yeah. So like email and Slack, did it make work better? And we will get into it. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't have an answer from right away. We used a program called HipChat, which actually some nerds might remember, but the company called Alassian that also makes Jira and owns Trello now, they made HipChat back in the day. Anything that has to tell you that it's hip is automatically (laughs) not going to work, right? Exactly, right. Yeah, it was like, now that I I say it, it sounds like a really dorky name. Do you you remember, is it Hipstamatic? It was the competitor to Instagram. I forgot about that. I think it was called Hipstamatic. Right, right. But we're talking about Slack. So tell me this. When you think of the word Slack, I think of two things, either slacking off or picking up the Slack. Which one do you think they mean? I think a slack lines. Ooh, slack lining? I was doing that with some friends out in the park this weekend, actually. Yeah, that doesn't have anything to do with it. (laughs) It's one of these two things, but I don't know which one it is. And I think, honestly, it's probably both. Here's the thing about Slack. I sent you this Atlantic article that said that 169... Thousand companies now use Slack. Right. So if you like, maybe don't work regularly. You've missed this, but most people are using some version of this. Or Microsoft Teams now yeah. sort of picked up. They're calling them team collaboration apps. That's okay. the, that's the market segment. Okay. Right. As of 2019, it was a three and a half billion dollar industry, and they were expecting it to grow 70 percent by 2022. For Slack specifically, 65 of the Fortune 100 companies use oh, it, wow. which is actually a little surprising to me. I thought Microsoft would actually have a little bit more of a hold in there. But I think Slack, you know, this whole Atlantic article, they were saying like, this is one of the only business enterprise apps that people think is cool. Right. And it kind of was from the ground up. It wasn't the kind of senior leadership that were like, let's all use Slack. And that's actually what I used Microsoft Teams at the organization (laughs) that you mentioned. They tried to get everybody to onto like Microsoft Teams with sort of this social media profile piece to it and no one did it no one did oh really it. no not See, at all and that's what i was gonna, actually the story i was going to start earlier because when i was leading a national christian nonprofit like years ago i i when i came in we did have some people were using like skype chat sometimes it yeah. wasn't even called that then Link yet. is what we called it but we we're using a lot of email and like i said i think a lot of these things that we talk about with this communication overload might apply to email too but i mean the new chat programs were just out this is like 2011 or something and so i was like we're going to get on one of these programs so i led a team a whole team in the office i was oversaw sort of like all our hr and all of our training and all our staff so I got us on this program, HipChat. And here's the thing. You know, I researched which one I wanted. I introduced it to our whole team. I said, we're all going to have this on during the day. And I had one woman on my team Yeah, that just wouldn't, 
like everyone nodded in the meetings and I, when I showed it to them, but when we started using it, she wouldn't have it on, right? Oh, interesting. And so other people would be on it and you can see other people, you know, like they have a little green dot maybe next to their name and they're working or something like that. And people would chat back and forth. And at first people have fun with it. Like we say, uh, toy tool environment, people started playing with it. They could do some emoji on it. They could say some fun things. And then we got to the point where like, Hey, can I, you know, asking questions about an HR procedure or something like this. But this one woman just wouldn't go on it. And I think I remember going by her desk one time and, and she was like, oh, I, I just forgot. And she loaded it up. And I was like, okay. But then like it was so consistent. I think I said to her in a one-on-one, I'm like, I need you to be on on HipChat. That, because like it's like for me, it was like you're not coming to the team meetings. You're not being present. Yeah, you're, you're not like, showing up at work. You're like, right. Like it feels like you're not there. And she was frustrated with me. Uh, I mean, I was her boss. I can relate. Like, <laughs> I've been very frustrated with you at times. <laughs> she was like, I don't like, sort of like this and I don't really want to do it. I'm like, well, we're doing it together as a team. It's not an individual app. It's a team app, right? Like mm, this is for mm, team mm. communication. This is how we're going to work together. And so there's not an individual opt out on this. It seems like a silly thing to lay down the law on, but mm. I did to make it clear during working hours, if I don't see you on the online list, I'm going to consider you not at work. Oh, and, wow. so, and that's, I changed the policy for a team. And so she very grudgingly did it and she would open it up every day she'd pop up and immediately the little light would change to red because she would set it on do not disturb (laughs) so all the time she'd be on do not disturb (laughs) and i I like her more and more i'm I'm like i knew you'd relate to this story (laughs) and so the question is i think now this is like eight years later nine years later and now i've used a lot more slack used and of course we're all loaded up under email and things my question now is was i right was she right or was I right? Was she like, yeah. I, at the time I saw yeah. it was like totally resistant, totally like she just can't deal with something new. I think her thing was like, well, I'm doing other work. I'm getting interrupted. Yeah. I yeah. don't really want to deal with this. And I think some of it was just stubbornness, but also there might've been something where she was like, this is not the way I want to work. And yeah. science is now showing as yeah. we're going to talk about that. Maybe it's not good for anybody. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we were already overloaded with email, and here comes along oh. HipChat and Slack, <laughs> right? But people are getting, on average, an email every six minutes. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. But sure. now people are checking Slack every five minutes. Oh, wow. So the race is on, right? Seriously, I, I was seeing a study from 2018 from Rescue Time. You know, they put a program on your computer that tracks like every app you're on, yeah, like yeah. just to just to figure out what you're doing. And they said... I'm um, trying to figure out what I'm doing most of the time. <laughs> right, right, right. They said the average person between checking either Slack or email has one hour and 15 minutes of undistracted productive work a day. Oh my gosh, that's so So terrible. an eight hour day, they have one hour and 15 minutes that of actual... so miserable. Un- because people are checking their email. Like you said, like one other study said every three to six minutes. I saw another thing about email that said in 2005, we did about 50 emails a day, sent and received. Okay. Okay. 2006 was 69. 2011 was 92. 2019 was 126 emails sent and received a day or ignored a day. (laughs) I don't even know if that counts the ones that are in your inbox that you don't use. Right. Yeah. 28% of our week is spent managing email and after getting interrupted, you know, you're getting interrupted every five minutes, every six minutes, whatever. Right. It takes right. between 10 and 25 minutes to get back on track, to kind of recover from the interruption. Right, right. That point you just made is the entire point of a new book that I just read. I want to tell you about. It's called A World Without Email. Chris, a world without email. That sounds heavenly. Tell me about it. (laughs) I will actually let a professor named Cal Newport tell you about it. He's a professor of computer science at Georgetown, and he wrote this book that, honestly, Adam... I was just reading this week for this, and it might be one of my favorite books of the year. Wow. Uh, A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload. This guy is awesome. Really? He is on a ranty mission. I mean, he's written a bunch of other books, Digital Minimalism. You had me at Digital Minimalism. I know, that's very you. Deep 
But he has been on a, a rager for like the last eight years, publishing mm. in journals, saying email and and by extension the chat apps, and we can talk about. Okay. It, but he's only sees these all in the same bucket. Is has destroyed work as we know it. Mm. And his chapter titles include Chapter One: Email reduces productivity. Chapter Two: Email makes us miserable. <laughs> and Chapter Three: Email has a mind of its own. <laughs> you know, and his descriptions just make you breathe. You're like, this is what's happened. He's like, we live in an avalanche of messages. Everything gets lost. You're in constant interruption. Answering email becomes performative. Like mm. you're sort of doing work when you're not really. Yeah. Like a lot of people's knowledge jobs or office jobs are like, what What are you doing? Emails? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, right? If you're not sure how to get something done, you can just like answer an email sort of vaguely. <laughs> he really goes after that. <laughs> He's like simple conversations expanding to like 10 different messages that don't need to happen like mm. that. Oh, man. Right? And he He's like, yeah. it actually formalizes people's style to a weird degree. Right, the way right. they communicate becomes right. this like level of corporate speak that's yeah. like, he's like, it created this yeah. thing. And his term for this, which is my favorite, is, wait for it, the hyperactive hive mind. Okay, that sounds terrible. <laughs> it sounds invasive. Yeah. Like, I imagine bees running around. <laughs> the hive mind, oh, the man. hyperactive hive mind. He says, we live in a work communication world now where everyone is sort of buzzing about and sending constant messages at each other. And his definition is, it's a, I mean, he's a business professor, but he says the hyperactive hive mind is a workflow centered around ongoing conversation fueled by unstructured, unscheduled messages delivered through digital communication tools like email and instant messenger services. He said it's destroying us. Thoughts. Yeah, when I left the Christian organization and shifted to a new organization, I, I started using Slack much more regularly. We were using it we work, within our team. You're working with, for Faith Tech right. National, right? Yeah. yeah. So you've been, been working as a director with Faith Tech. Yeah. And so, yeah, we and started, Of course, it's Faith Tech. Everyone's using Slack. Yeah. That, you got to use Tech Slack. companies use Slack. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I was, you know, kind of excited. I'd heard about Slack, but hadn't really gotten a reason to use it. <laughs> Just heard about Slack two years ago. <laughs> but eventually I found that I was managing both email and Slack. So Slack hadn't replaced okay. email. Yeah, right. It had just supplemented it. But there were times when I was working with my coworkers that they were like, you got to use Slack. We're not going to do an email for that. Yeah. Okay. And, and right. so like there was some, even just some training or just oh, right, right, right. Uh, norms with, mm -hmm. within yeah, the yeah, team, norms, right? right? To yeah. say this sort of content is for Slack and this sort of content is for email and kind of having to discern which is which. Right. That's a very common scenario, I right. think, in every workplace on the planet. So originally Slack got billed, well, actually just going back. Email got billed as the new memo instead of interoffice memos, right? right? Email was going to make this all so much more efficient because you didn't have a, you didn't need a secretary to type something up. I mean, I'm talking like, I don't know, Mad Men days or something, <laughs> but tag this up. And they used to have runners in offices that right. would pick up your little note or your memo from one office and take it to the next floor and deliver it to the right desk. It might take all day, but it would work, right? Messengers everywhere. Email, e-messengers or emails, it was going to be like change all this, make it super efficient. And then of course we all started hating the heck out of email. Like, <laughs> like our inboxes got so full. Then we tried to do inbox zero as a reaction to that. I know some people that did that. I've never been able to do it ever in my Not life. And then Gmail was like, search, don't, don't sort because yeah. they're like, you're never going to find anything. So in the mountain of, I mean, I, I would love to know how many emails, how many emails do you think I have in my inbox or like in my Gmail? I've had the same Gmail account for like eight or 10 years. I just want to look. Well, now I have to look at my, <laughs> my Yahoo account. You're, that's right. You have a Yahoo I don't even think I know. I don't I'm think there's a way sure. to find out how many emails I have. I think there is. Hold on. I think I can. Oh, oh, oh. Here it is. I found it. I just. Yeah. You have to like in Gmail, you can't go to like your just your inbox. You have to go to like all mail back to the archive. Currently, I have 132,324 email messages. That's crazy. <laughs> That's not even like... <laughs> mm. 
So, I mean, you know, email was supposed to be this really efficient version of the memos. And then Slack comes along with these chat programs in like 2014 and we're all miserable with email. And they're like, this will be the solution for email. Right. 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 Like this will, I remember all the Slack web pages. They were like, get rid of your email. You can just chat. Like, right. like it's much right. more live. It's, it's much a, more human. It's a technological solution. To a technological problem. <laughs> there you go, exactly. Right. Which we always know that works. Except what wound up happening is exactly what you were just saying, yeah. where people wind up feeling tension. You use both, and then there's a lot of norms about, do I use Slack for this, or do I use email for this? Right, right. And somehow I've got to remember, was it in Slack, or was it in email? Oh my gosh, that's the worst. <laughs> right. And at one point, Cal Newport, in his book, starts talking about the psychology of unhappiness. He says, there are 230 million knowledge workers in the worldwide, which he says equals a lot of misery. <laughs> <laughs> and they did all these studies with like heart rate monitors and like body heat stressors at your desk. And people stress out when they're in their inbox. The more inbox time you spend, the more people's heart rates were up, the more people were sweating, the more people <laughs> were feeling unhappy stress from the being buried in communications. Right. And it's one of those things where you have to at least open the email to scan it and decide, is it important or not? Same with Slack. Yeah, you have right. to look at the channel, at the notifications and say, is this worth my time or is it not worth my time? And you you constantly have to make all those decisions. And that takes mental energy that could be spent on other things. And then there's this idea of you are anticipating those messages, which is why people check their email. Yeah all the time. Right. And so even when it's not there, you and I have talked about how technologies have a presence even when they're not present. Did I mention this study to you? Maybe it was in the, in the same book. These psychologists did a thing where they had people come into a room and like, hey, would you do a word problem in, a, in this like, you know, and they give them a word problem at a desk. Okay. And the person would sit down and start working on the word problem. And then the psychologist came back in two minutes later and was like, oh, I'm sorry. We're like measuring like how you're doing it from using the stuff in the room. But your phone laying on the desk here is actually, I don't know, it's causing some problems with the system <laughs> could we just pick that up and move that over here and they would they're like oh yeah sure so they would pick up the phone and move it to another table this is fake the psychologist had planned to come in <laughs> and pick up the phone and what they would secretly do is turn the uh, the notifications back on on the uh -huh, phone when uh -huh. they set it back down they would leave the room and say okay now for the next 10 minutes just for the experiment would you please work on the word problem no interruptions right perfect they'd leave the room and start buzzing <laughs> their phone <laughs> they would start like sending emails oh, to the email word. address and the phone would be going dink, dink yeah dink. i mean my hormone levels are just going up up <laughs> right, up right, right now and like the people could not finish the word problem <laughs> because they knew that there was emails coming in the, the study even pointed out the people knew they were going into this thing and were fine with muting their phone in advance and already yeah. had yeah so they knew they would not be checking email during that time right but they still with the knowledge that someone had sent them a message right. it was affecting their work they could not concentrate they could not do anything until they checked that message yeah that that little ding or that buzz opens this loop in our brains and we have this impulse this compulsion to close that loop and know what that ding was about and when it when we can't do it we can't think about other things but that is part of this hyperactive hive mind right yeah this is the whole thing and one category that you and i have talked about before is like synchronous and asynchronous communications right so synchronous communications being if i call you on the phone we're talking live right and we have to be both there at the same time. Right. So you and I are, are synchronous right now because we're both present at the same time doing right. something. Although ironically, a listener obviously is asynchronous. But a listener pick, is asynchronous, <laughs> right. They're picking that up whenever you have time to pick it up and listen, yeah. right? And so like when you think about it, like if you start to categorize all office communications technologies like memos back in the day would be sort of it actually be asynchronous right because someone would type it up and then you'd send it and the other person yep. would read it when they have the time slot to do that yep. but then you move to the phone call like desk to desk and you right. had to both be there right the problem is what would happen is when the other person wasn't there you'd leave a message and then it went to asynchronous and asynchronous yeah exactly right but synchronous faxes remember faxes no <laughs> you're old chris <laughs> i volunteered in an office when i was like in i don't know 14 and like we had to send faxes all the time they were frustrating you always had the spool of heat paper like yeah that paper was weird it was terrible but that's asynchronous yep right? pretty much anything written is asynchronous right yeah yeah, yeah and right. anything audio podcast notwithstanding right are often synchronous 
email becomes like the ultimate asynchronous communication. I write it whenever I want to, mm-hmm. and I drop it, and you read it when you have time to get back to your inbox, right? right? And so there's like this rise in efficiency, because you can do it on your time, I can do it on my time. Except somehow, all the studies are showing that there wasn't a rise of efficiency. There was a drop in efficiency. We're not producing as much. Right. It seems like it should work. It should be more efficient. I have time to write it now. You have time to read it later. Cal Newport's whole thing is the big mistake is that we created an asynchronous communication that had no overhead, meaning it was super, super easy to do. It didn't take a lot of work. You didn't have to get a secretary to do it. You could fire off a chat on Slack or you can send an email and the asynchronous plus no overhead. No friction. No friction. That's even a better word. No friction is what has made us send thousands of messages and made us all overwhelmed. So this whole hyperactive hive mind sounds like this new thing. But as I was researching this episode, I ran across this story about a guy named Seneca. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, this is ancient Rome, right? Ancient Rome, right. So Seneca is really interesting, actually, because, yeah, he's a Roman statesman. He's a Stoic philosopher, which Stoicism has kind of become back, back into vogue. Hot stuff. But he was a contemporary of Jesus. He was pretty much born like 4 BC and he died around 65 AD. So he's he's like a contemporary of Jesus, a contemporary of Paul. But he is part of the Roman Empire, right? And one of the big innovations for Rome was that they kind of in contrast to the Greeks, the Roman Empire was run on paperwork. They had legislation. They had missives. Yeah. They were sending... You know, messages back and forth are very our social media. Right, our (laughs) Our very very first first episode episode. (laughs) (laughs) was all about how they sent these messages. Yeah, they they would like they would have little wax tablets and write down like Twitter like sentences, and then have this is the bad part. They'd have a slave grab that message and run it to the other side of town and read it to them, and they'd pass messages back. But it was it was all of this writing that made Rome what it was Mm, in in a big way. Obviously, the Roman Empire, but. Uh, a lot of the writing made it possible for Rome to expand its territory in a in a huge way. So Seneca is a part of this, and he wrote these letters to a friend of his named Lucilius. They were called the Moral Letters. Lucilius asks Seneca, you know, what is particularly important to avoid? And so Seneca writes a letter back, and he says, a mass crowd, that's what you need to avoid. You cannot entrust yourself to it. I never come back home, he says, with quite the same moral character I went out with. Something or other becomes unsettled where I had achieved inner peace, which I think is interesting. And so for Seneca, he's looking at this mass crowd and looking at this experience and saying, that is the hyperactive hive mind going on in the the Roman Empire. They're constantly bombarded, not only with the Mm. crowd itself, but with all of the messages that are going back and forth. And... It's constantly drawing their attention away from the internal life that he has, this sort of internal, what he called internal peace, the sense of trusting your own instincts and ideas. That autonomy, he says, is is what's most important in his philosophy and that the imposing voices, the hyperactive hive mind coming in is constantly distracting you from that. And so we think that Slack and email have created this place where we're kind of thrown off kilter and all the notifications are driving us crazy. But in reality, even Seneca at the time of Jesus was dealing with much of the same sorts of dynamics and challenges of focus and attention. Okay. Okay. Well, that makes me think history repeating itself maybe, (laughs) but it makes me think this big question of tech determinism, which actually does come up in that Cal Newport book, is email and Slack and communication overload something that controls us and it has a mind of its own or can humans control the technology? God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. 
Our first mini-series, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So back to this whole idea of email was supposed to be amazing, right? Like email was supposed to be this new replacement and whether tech controls us or not. Cal Newport tells the story of IBM. Okay. Like obviously that one of the OG tech companies and they were getting into email and they were going to buy a computer to do it. And this is a mainframe computer. So okay. like we're talking like, I don't know, costs millions of dollars. It probably takes up a room or something, but a team that was planning for this looked at the company and, and counted how many inter-office messages that e- the, that the offices sent to each other each day. Right. Like sort of the manual paper system. And so they counted it up, projected forward, and they bought this mainframe that would be able to handle the number of messages for the future. Okay. And they rolled out email. Like, they're like, ta-da, <laughs> we have electronic <laughs> messages, you know, now. And the server crashed in a week. Wow. Because... <laughs> Because people suddenly sent six times the number of messages that this IBM smart team anticipated they would. Cal Newport says this is a great example of how technology is like horses running away with us and we are being dragged on the ground by it. (laughs) That the technology is leading. Like, and this is that whole tech determinism thing of like his definition of this is any innovation that alters our behaviors in ways that were neither intended or predicted by Hmm. those first adopting Hmm. the tool. Hmm. Hmm. Suddenly it becomes super easy to send messages. And so people are more likely to do it. And so they just do more of it. And it's the same thing with Slack, right? 100%. People didn't operate the way they did when they were sending paper messages. They operated in a new way with email messages. Right. And in that Atlantic article, they made an interesting point along the same lines. They said, you know, if you introduce Photoshop into your organization, it's not going to radically change your organization. But Slack so thoroughly permeates a company's culture that it changes the company's culture. Right. There's a difference between... Photoshop and Slack. And Slack has this transformative, almost determinative effect on the organization and the culture. It makes me think of Andy Crouch, uh, difference between the instrument kind of technologies, like a surgeon's tool versus what is his other term? A device. A uh, device. Yeah. A device when he's using the device paradigm. Borgman's Newport says, we, we know email and chat is like a better way to deliver messages. IBM knew it was better. Like jammed fax machines or big file cabinets were not particularly good. <laughs> this is clearly more efficient. So, you know, what went wrong in our thinking? Mm-hmm. And he says the office of 2021 is not the the office of 1991 plus some extra capabilities. Right. It is a different office altogether. Right. Where work unfolds as a never-ending ad hoc unstructured flow of messages, the hyperactive hive mind. Mm-hmm. And then he quotes my favorite person, <laughs> Neil Postman. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yes. And Neil Postman says something very similar, and I actually do not hate this quote, even though I've been known to go off on Neil Postman. <laughs> uh, he says, technological changes are not additive. They are ecological. Mm -hmm. A new medium does not add something. It changes everything. In the year 1500, I think you know this quote, in the year 1500, after the printing press was invented, you did not have old Europe plus the printing press. You had a different Europe. Yeah. We have a different office. We do. This kind of argument goes back in the face of the social shaping of technology people that say, hey, different communities have shaped technology for the outcomes they want to have, right? The Jews uh, want kosher technology and they made kosher technology. But this kind of argument is why I'm a soft determinist. (laughs) I think inventors create whole repetitive systems that sweep everybody up into it and no one person has control of it. And it's a completely different set of outcomes. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think about all of these new dynamics that we're wrestling with, with Slack 
for example, there's an expectation with Slack and it was increasing with email that you would be consistently available even outside of work hours. Your work life and your personal life were suddenly getting closer and closer together, right? Yeah, because people would check it on their phone. We forgot to add sort of the mobile phone in this whole story because you add Slack and email over to your smartphone and those things go with you everywhere. You're at dinner, by your bed. Right. And into this space, now you have big tech companies advocating that you bring your whole self to work. Oh, interesting. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of working the opposite direction. And that sounds really positive. Bring your whole self, all of the pieces of you to, the, to bring your Bring the whole work. work to yourself and bring your whole self to work. <laughs> right. But the idea that if you bring your whole self to work, you're probably going to take all of work home with you as well. Yeah. And it, 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 it's a two-way street in that sense. And so this idea that we're always available, that our public life our work life and our private life are collapsed together and that I need to be my most authentic self at work are these ideas that we've sort of absorbed, but are those ideas somewhat the result of email being constantly available and us as a result being constantly available to work? So I can hear people thinking, yeah, it is terrible. They have destroyed work-life balance. And they would be right. (laughs) <laughs> right. I am really torn on that. Okay. Like, listen to me before I had this on this, because like, okay. maybe it's because I started out in ministry, right? I started out in campus ministry. I mean, I actually, I started out as a Microsoft consultant working to a Fortune 500 clients for a little bit. And that was like, you know, I wore a tie and went to clients offices, but I ditched that really fast and went back to this life where my job was sort of being relational. And I was with people, you know, I led small groups at night and people came into my home. And so my quote unquote work ministry was all blended into my life. Right. I loved that. Yeah. Loved it. Like, because I had a mission, like it was the great commission and my life and work, it was all completely blended. No, it wasn't online very much. It was some, I would, you know, you chat and text with students, but my life was completely blended. I was like, this is the best way of living. (laughs) And I really came to the conclusion that everyone that was working corporate jobs where they did Monday through Friday, nine to five, and then just tried to live for the weekends and the evenings were like, oh God, thank God I'm out of there, was living a sort of lesser life. Mm -hmm. So when you discuss this whole like blending and the thing, part of me goes, great, yeah, now, and I, I'm smarter now. I realize like that can be super overwhelming and yeah. like the capitalism pulls in people's productivity, but I'm not sure the most human thing is actually the barrier between the the hard boundaries either. Yeah, I see what you're saying. For me, I'm much more the opposite. No surprise there. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, I like to keep my work life and my personal life in kind of separate camps. That yeah. said, I think, you know, with my change in jobs, I felt more integrated and like there was a, a little bit more overlap between my personal life and interests and my professional life. Sure. And right. I did feel some sense yeah. of satisfaction with that. But there's also points at which I kind of still want to keep them separate. And that's, I think, just my personality. But yeah. I think there's also something about how God has made us and the ways that work are meant to be integrated into our lives that the industrial and commercial worlds have actually separated out so that you would go right. away to work. Right, 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 right. And, As opposed and, to working your own land and home and work was all together. Right, yes. right. Industrial capitalism has sort of separated these two things out, but now it wants to push them back together, but kind of by taking over your entire personal life. I mean, I'm fine with it as long as there's a spinny parrot. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> do, you know what I, do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Is that a Slack emoji? Yeah, you know. <laughs> you know on Slack, oh, you can man. react to things. You can do it a standard thumbs up or you can do a standard like heart for love. But then there's that that once like Slack has it and I don't think like nothing else seems to have it. It's the parrot's head that's like a technicolor parrot right, right. and it's spinning around in circles for like, yeah. Is that is that because you feel like you need Slack to represent your emotions? In that yes, exactly. And <laughs> maybe one of the reasons why Slack was cool, maybe like one of the reasons why I did feel like it could fit more personally is because it did have a lot more playful things. Most people have the GIF thing activated in Slack where you could just throw up a random, you know, animated GIF. Yeah. You could do emojis and funny things. One of the things about just chat in general is it allows you to be more casual and relational in the same way that I, in a co-working situation, 
Like I, I like make lots of jokes, you know, like we laugh. If you're in a meeting with people, to me, those are not maybe different personalities on this too. Yeah. I often treat those as fairly social mm-hmm. things and I like Slack for that. I like the fact that it feels social and chatty, you know, this doom and gloom about the communications overload, which I realize I'm the one that's bringing this, but <laughs> Like when I've been thinking about it, I'm like, I sort of like the relationalist on the stack. I was actually the last thing I led, which was a a thing with another national denomination. We didn't have any chat app with that group. And I thought about introducing a chat app in that group because I was like, oh, we were all distributed, working in multiple locations as a way of providing more teamness mm-hmm. and warmth. And that was missing for yeah, me. Yeah. I liked the relationships and I liked the fun. So my question is, can all of that sort of emotional, social communication happen in a text environment if you're working remote or if you're working in a distributed team. I actually found research that said, you know, in an environment like that, 30% of your text communication is social and emotional. Which makes sense to me. I mean, yeah, it's the emojis, that's the joke, definitely. And so is that all becomes part of the disruption of your day then, right? And it but doesn't. People it, aren't a disruption, Adam. No. <laughs> right, sure, right, right, right. Right, and yeah. email, Slack are implemented in order to increase your productivity. But we also have to recognize that maybe they're trying to increase our relationality as much as anything. And in a re- remote post-COVID world, that becomes much more challenging. You know that Cal Newport book. He mostly bunches Slack and email together, right? But. To me, like we were just saying, the Slack feels a little bit more friendly yeah. and relational, mm-hmm. maybe because of the rapid fireness of it. You can rapid fire emails too, right? Like we've yeah. all done it, yeah, yeah. but but it has that cultural formality and you are less likely to do a social, emotional sort of thing there. Slack feels more like you're at the office. Maybe it is less productive, but I mean, I mean, if you're in a room with your coworkers, you're having those same interruptions, right? Yeah. Yeah, to some degree. Uh, you know, you're usually not that focused, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just have the picture of Dunder Mifflin. Oh, gosh. The <laughs> office. Like, they have this open <laughs> office set up, and, like, right, nothing right. gets done there, right? <laughs> but, like, there's a ton of relationship happening. I just don't know how Slack compensates to make that happen. I think it's an open question, and it'd be interesting to hear from other people, whether they think the work track is good for relationships and the emotional communication at work, or it's, or it's rough. There's a lot of emotions that are left out. It's a different kind of yeah, language, yeah, right? Yeah. But you don't get the body language that if you're, we are face to face, which is really significant. Yeah. And, uh, I, and I think the, the asynchrony of both email and Slack. Oh, I should have pointed this out. I think Slack is synchronous asynchrony. Okay. Like uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. when I wrote about this years ago, I called it virtual. I would never use this term now, but I called it virtual simultaneity <laughs> in a thesis. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but essentially it was this idea that I was trying to classify it as either like live, like a phone call yeah. or as a completely asynchronous. It's sort of both. Mm-hmm. It, it pops up in our notifications. We tend to use it in a timely manner. So maybe I don't see it this second, but I do see it within 20 minutes yeah, maybe. Yeah. And so it creates these little waves of its its synchronous and asynchronous, right? So it, right. it almost created a new category. Yeah, the new kind of asynchronous environment of communicating through Slack and email, I think is contributing to the argument of remote work and distributed work in a way that says, oh, this is completely possible now. Yeah. And, and now you have someone like Elon Musk, who's arguing, no, you need to be in the office 40 hours a week in person. And he's actually probably fighting an uphill battle against the technologies that are making work for his organization and lots of other tech companies and lots of companies, 65 of the top Fortune 100 companies possible. This is good. I know we have some other ethical thoughts, but before we go into that, let's talk about some pushback that's happening in the world of communication overload. So faced with this communication overload, I think people are starting to agree with this guy, Cal Newport and others, and saying we have to figure out a different way to do it. He's about blow the thing up. This is not working. (laughs) He's like, we've just sort of defaulted into this hyperactive hive mind and management's just reinforcing it because that's their job is to just make emails move along, but that's not even what managers should be doing. So 
he pointed out this Silicon Valley guy um, named Greg Woodward. He's a guy that uses this stuff called extreme programming XP. Have you heard of it? Uh-uh. <laughs> it's, you might have heard of Agile, which yeah. is like a programming sort of philosophy. Yeah. And it's a, it's a workflow for developers to use. And actually, I know this stuff decently well and have used it a lot. And I like it. But I did not know XP as well. When he read this book last year, or like read one of this guy's articles, he called him and said, I want to fly you out to Silicon Valley because I want to show you what we're doing with our developers. Huh. And so he took Cal to this place and he showed him that all his developers, like you were saying about Elon Musk, were required to work in person. Okay. They worked in the same room. Okay. And they had some rules. They were not allowed to check email huh. while they were working. If they needed to talk to one of the other people, they couldn't chat them. They had to wait until they saw the other person was going to stand up from their desk and they had to go over and talk to them. He's like, it's way more efficient. Wow. Which is funny to me because developers talking to each other, they <laughs> usually prefer not to. They just want to be in dark mode, you know? Yeah. He said a, a PM, a, a, a product manager handles all the outside contact for the developer team. So like if you want to oh, like wow. talk to them like this person handles it and oh, wow. everything and like no one's can, they can't talk to anyone else but this is the craziest part they use this philosophy called pair programming where two developers share the same computer wow and which I was like, what? And, and Cal Newport's like, it sounds crazy because anyone that's like a business person would be like, oh, you can't give one laptop to two developers. Like, it makes no sense. But he was saying developers, when they're doing specialized work, most of the brain work is not typing in code. Most of the brain work is thinking about what the solution is going to be. And then huh. typing in the code is only a part of it. So you need creative work. If you're getting in all these messages, you get distracted. So they require two programmers to sit at the same workstation and they talk out or draw and work on their huh. solution and then one of them sort of types it in huh. and they work together on it yeah, like yeah, in this yeah. back and forthness it's yeah. crazy right it forces them to have to talk and solve problems together they have consistent focus he's like you cannot check your phone or be distracted because the other person is right there <laughs> and like it'd be weird right you're right, like checking right, right. your phone or like surfing the web but like yeah. you're working with that other person right now oh man they said well, they only have these guys work 40 hours a week might be guys and gals hopefully as opposed to the Silicon Valley standard for a developer which is like 60 or 80 hours a week because he said they are way, way more effective during their work. They're not distracted. That's fascinating. Extreme programming, the opposite of the communications overload method. That's super fascinating. Wow. Yeah, as I've wrestled with having both Slack and email, one thing that kind of somehow came into my life about the time I changed jobs was time blocking. It's really just a marriage of your calendar and your to-do list. At least it is for me. Sure. Yeah. And I've just taken my to-do list and I map it on every week to my calendar and I make time for email. I block it out maybe an hour at a time. Okay. Right. And I do it, you know, three to four times a week. I don't respond to email very frequently. It probably yeah. drives some people crazy. Right, 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 right. And things in some ways don't get done as fast in that sense. But man, I tell you what, the focus time is amazing. I mean, Cal Newport would be clapping for you because people would have to go read the book and we won't get into it all here, but he does write the whole second half of this book on how you could work not being in the hyperactive hive mind. And his main thing is that coordinating work is different than creating work. Yeah. And your coordinating work, like checking email, should be completely separate. Creating work could be math. It could be writing a press release. Right. It could be, be manufacturing, doing carpentry. It can be all these things. He's like, but don't check your coordination system <laughs> while you do it. He's like, the problem is, yeah. back to the, us thinking about our phones, everyone else is doing it. And so you have to shut the whole hive mind down somehow. Yeah. But checking your email, like that like a couple times a week or once a day yeah and then moving through a fixed process of coordination like using trello boards or agile or some of these other systems are the ways to work so you can actually focus but i tell you what man it is a challenge because the hive mind is going and the hive mind wants what the hive mind wants (laughs) and it's like i i can't get that to you right now in some offices the expectation is you're returning that email It'd be not okay if you didn't right. return that, especially a Slack message. You right. didn't return something in two hours. Right. Yeah. And the idea that an individual is going to change the hyperactive hive mind is just nonsensical. It feels like it's upstream, not like not possible. Right. Like, like an individual changing that a tech wave. <laughs> and, and so it's encouraging to hear stories like the extreme programming. But he was the boss and he right. changed it for his entire team. Right. And teams it's had a, to sign it, on to it when they came. Right. Right. And Which is like he had control of that culture. Yeah, it's a top-down decision that has to be made. And 
Corporate cultures, managers have to be thinking about the process for their people as much as they're thinking about the product that they're giving to consumers. So Adam, with all this, how do you think that this hyperactive hive mind, the chat, the email, forms us as humans. Yeah, you know, we've talked about productivity and the ideas that email and Slack would be these means of being more productive yeah, in, our, right. in our work. There's this notion of efficiency, and that really is a driving factor behind technology in general. But I want to push back and ask, is that the defining feature of the work that we want to do? Is it the way that we want to talk about work? Is it the kind of good work that God calls us to Mm -hmm. that we are productive? I think God wants us to be creative. And I think, you know, that's an interesting distinction. Okay, But productive isn't necessarily the same thing. As I got into the work world myself, one of the things I realized was that And this kind of became a conviction for me. Our work life is one of the most spirit formative activities that we do. Yeah. You know, my work as an editor and a writer, I think, has shaped how I see the world, how I think about the world, how I think about relationships, how I think about my spiritual life, all sorts of ways. And I think. You know, you would say the same thing, that the work you do has shaped and formed you in various yeah, ways. Yeah, like that, it was starting with the ministry stuff really shaped me because it was all together. Right. And you saw, okay, how can I be an integrated person in that right. space, right? right? One person that I, I'll cite here is a guy named Brian Brock. He has a great book called Christian Ethics in a Technological Age. It's fantastic, but he talks a lot about good work. And so about I'm just going to- good work. Yes. He kind of cites the reformers as saying that work is meaningful because by it, God sustains us. It allows us to serve others. It allows us to build his kingdom. And he Mm -hmm. would have us kind of recognize that our work is not our salvation. It is not going to save us and that our salvation is through Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of productivity, the idea of efficiency, this idea that we can somehow produce enough to save ourselves is something that Jesus frees us from. Mm -hmm. In that freedom, we have a different way of thinking about work. And he gives three characteristics. Okay. One is that we are tuned into our community. Another is that we're reflective about our work. And the third is that we're playful. So I'll just unpack those really quickly. Okay. So this idea of community being tuned into our community He says, good work recognizes that humans are communal beings. Right. We're not monads. He says he's an academic monads. Yeah. But our work entails this network of associations. And Slack and email sort of represent that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it feels to me like Slack, back to what we were saying about the relationality there. Absolutely. feels like it. Yeah. You you can't Slack with yourself. Right. Actually, I think you can. There is a a place to leave yourself You can Slack with bots, right? Like you put (laughs) bots in channels. But I mean, that feels communal, maybe very thin version of the community. Right. This idea that you you are slacking because you are separated. So you are this sort of individual node and you're, you know, slacking to another node and (laughs) you're remote from one another. You are sort of this isolated person. You're not in community the way you would be in the extreme programming. You know, it's like your partner. If you're a cop, you've got you, you hit a beat. Yeah. Right. You know, these two guys like you become really personal with that person. Right. Yeah. You, You do get to know them. And I would imagine that two programmers working together day in and day out are going to get to know each other really well. And even learn how to have conversations. (laughs) Amazing. I've known too many developers that don't hate me. (laughs) Right, right. It is more tuned into the community. It is is more relational. And and there's that life-giving quality of having that. So that's that okay. first one. You're, yeah, you're sure. tuned into your community. The, the second is that you're reflective. He says, you know, reflection is about how our own work mm. relates to the flourishing of those around us. Mm-hmm. And so we think about our work in a way that how is it serving others? How is it a service to others? So instead of how do I get ahead in my job? How am I more productive in order to get that promotion, that next level of pay? Instead of that sort of competitive aspect, 
it's thinking about how is my work serving others? How am I mm-hmm. providing for the needs of others? And maybe that's people that I work with, but you know, it's also, you know, the products that I create. And when our work isn't a competitive space where we're trying to get ahead and save ourselves, we can think about our work in a way that frees us to serve others and care for others. And we think about the product as something that is valuable, not just to me, but to other people. And I wonder if that reflection people might, when you say, well, I'm not in it just to save myself. I'm trying to do good work, you know. But it may go, Cal Newport in his book referenced this sort of 2019 study that said managers, when they'd get, like people managers, when uh-huh. they get really overwhelmed with all the stuff coming at them, they were more likely to just do what he called tactical tasks. Like they would just respond to do small tasks that were unimportant, respond yeah. to more emails, push yeah. things around, but not be reflective is yeah. the point. Huh. Like you would start doing more and more busy work because yeah. you're overwhelmed. Yeah, yeah, and totally relate to that. It, right, I related to that too. And like this journal of psychology just said, <laughs> this is true. We're watching people that's, they do that. And so they didn't do a good job at doing leadership, like stopping, thinking about where all their team was, how to care mm-hmm. for them and where they were going to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They didn't do that kind of work when they were overwhelmed, even yeah. though that's what we want a manager or a leader to do. Right. And totally. that's reflective work. Yeah. That's where work that's like, how as a leader can I serve the other yeah. people around me totally. or lead us to a better thing? And that was the kind of work that the hive mind did terribly at. Yeah. That's great. So communally attuned, reflective. The third one is sort of counterintuitive, playful. That I'm so playful. <laughs> it, it, in our in our work, we actually have I'm already this, winning. <laughs> okay, sorry. What? No, it, in our work, we have this space to play, and it reminded me of something I've heard Eugene Peterson talk about. He talked about Sabbath. Okay, and yeah. he said, when it comes to Sabbath, my wife and I would do two things: we would pray. And we would play. And that was how he framed the Sabbath. Hmm, and that yeah. Sabbath, again, is that idea of stopping se- work, stopping work, separating ourselves. From no work. slack notifications. <laughs> right. <laughs> and when we are freed from saving ourselves through our jobs, we have room to experiment. We have room to waste time. We have room to explore new things. Yeah. And, you know, I use that term waste for a reason because it reminds me of an Arcade Fire song from the Suburbs album. Okay. (laughs) You you know, I love the Suburbs. And, but this is my favorite song in the album. And the chorus goes, wasted hours before we knew where to go and what to do. Wasted hours that you make new turn into a life that we can live. And that idea that we can waste time but God makes our wasted hours and he takes them and he makes something new out of them. And that becomes a life that's worth living. When we can play in our jobs, when we have opportunities to explore, experiment, there's a joy in that. There's a creativity in that beyond just the productivity. Yeah. I really love it. I think it's true. One, when I used to teach workshops and trainings for, I used to, you know, do different conferences and do our own you ever do the the evals at the end on a score of one to five, how useful was this to you and how efficient was the time, you know, you fill out this survey at the end. I would put one question at the top and it was my KPI, my key performance indicator for how well we were doing. Uh-huh. And it was, we had fun as a class, huh. one or five. Huh. And my staff were like, what? That's like, it sounds like a throwaway one. And I was like, yeah. no, that score is directly correlated to how people remembered and learned because Mm. they could be playful in that space and how they Mm. felt like protected, how like they felt like their community was there. There's a lot of things that I think were correlated to that. And so I think the playful is fun when you're working. Mm. And then also when you hit Sabbath, I just triple down on that. I had good mentors when I was young that taught me that Sabbath was, Mm. I mean, it was a little legalistic, but I I guess I, I don't think it was taught legalistically. I think it was taught really well. There was two things about it. One, it was about the pray and play, Mm. you know, for sure. But two, and this was key, we all did it together. Mm. My whole ministry team needed to have Mm. the same Sabbath. Anyone that's worked on church staff knows that, you know, you have to work a lot of weekends. So people take other days. A lot of pastors might take a Monday. But in this case, it was a campus ministry. So there was flexibility somewhat. So some people be like, well, I'm taking Friday's best for me. Monday's best for me. Saturday. And I remember one of the pastors arguing is like, no, we should all take the same day. And I have become more sympathetic to that argument because guess what it does? 
it shuts down the hyperactive hive mind. Yeah, yeah. And when we all are mm. in that culture mm. of resting together, yeah. and su- maybe Sundays is a good idea that everyone rests together, <laughs> then we're not all like rushing for the email ding. Mm. And mm. so there's some deep spiritual wisdom in a Sabbath having actually even being linked to the actual time and day, not yeah. just being individualistic, yeah. but being team-based. Yeah. Community, reflection, play, and Brian Brock roots all of this in worship. He says that mm. our work has to be rooted in worship because our worship highlights for us that Jesus is the means of our salvation, that we are not the means of our salvation. And he argues when it becomes disconnected from worship, it becomes futile, it becomes dehumanizing, it becomes competitive. Those are also aspects of the ways that we work today and the risks that we run. And do we have time for just one more thing? Sure. Well, Go ahead. Jump in. I mean, when I think of worship, I think of liturgy. And of course, the classic <laughs> definition of liturgy is the work of the people. That's all I'll say. Right. <laughs> and by that, God meant the slack of the people. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, and Brian Brock says that the church is the paradigm for non-exploitative community. Ooh, there you go. In contrast to this hive mind. When I think about the hive mind, I think I'm corporately attuned. I'm tuned into the company. I'm tuned into the pulse of the organization mm-hmm. as it's moving along. And when I think about prayer... Prayer is meant to tune me into the Trinity, to tune me into the community of God. When I do that, something else happens. Something we talked about with Tony Renke, tuning into the patterns of God's creation and recognizing what God is already at work doing and then joining him in that. And the picture for me is Bezalel. He is... Oh, the craftsman. The craftsman. Exodus 31. He is... After, I believe it's Noah, he is the first person filled with the Spirit of God, in according to Scripture. And he's given wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all kinds of skills, all to do craft work, all to build furniture and build the tabernacle. Yeah, and yes. he's doing all these things that God has commanded him to do, but he's tuned in. And I think prayer is a big part of tuning into what God is doing and being able to join in and participate in what he's doing. And I think prayer is sort of that counterintuitive move against what the hive mind is doing. You know, when they studied people in their inboxes, they saw people's stress reactions go up. Our heart rates increased, yeah. the anxiety climbed. And I know they've done, not that prayer is psychological, but I know they've done studies of what happens physiologically when people yeah. pray. And the opposite is true, where where it's a calm and anxiety is dropped. And there is a trusting that there's something, what I want to say spiritually about that physiological reality yeah. is that there's a leaning in and trusting in the mm. guy that's bigger than us. Mm. And so I guess we can lean into the inbox or not. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, Adam, you know what time it is. It's time for... Vice or virtue? Slack lines. <laughs> I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You don't have to do that. I know you hate that. The vice or virtue is, because you can't balance anyway, we know. Yeah, I have no balance. <laughs> the vice or virtue is those three little dots that appear when someone's typing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. The three little dots. Dot, dot, dot. What, what 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 will I say? They're virtually happening right now. What am I going to say right now? <laughs> He's typing, folks. He's typing. <laughs> right? It's all going on in my head. Adam and two other people are typing. <laughs> Adam and five other people are typing. <laughs> oh, no. The hive mind is getting to me. <laughs> I feel pressure. I, I don't really like him. Do I like him? I don't know. Do I like him? I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. I had a true ambivalence. <laughs> I, I figured out with somebody just the other day when it was... when actually it would be manifesting the three dots like what i would have to be doing for the other person to see three dots so that i would know whether i was oh if like showing letting, as present or not you mean like if the, you're letting the cursor sit there versus yeah like, if like you're hitting space or something right right if the cursor is just sitting there you're not going to see it you have to be i guess you have to be in a conversation like kind of actively i think if you pause or you backspace it stops 
I think is how it Sometimes is. Sometimes it goes away, right? Yeah, it goes yeah, away, yeah. right? It does create a bit of anxiety, I think. I have. Does it? Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, you're like, are they, are they going to respond? I'm waiting. I'm waiting. So I would say it's generally advice. It doesn't help me pray more. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, man. What, what about you? What do you think? We've talked a little bit about these signs, these tiny little presence signs that mm. they've added to these systems. Yeah. You know, why do they add them? You know, a cynical thing would be like, it keeps your attention, but maybe actually, maybe that is the point in this case. I like them because they more mimic a real conversation. When you're actually in a good conversation, we give subtle signals about when we're attending to each other and when we can sort of move on. Yeah. And so actually that blend of synchronous and asynchronous we were talking about, Mm -hmm. the three dots keep it synchronous. It makes it more live. Like I type something and I immediately see the three dots pop up. And instead of leaving that focus and moving to another focus, I stay with it because I want to see what they're going to say. I know it's coming. (laughs) They say something, I say something. And a lot of times we have a quick conversation. I think those are the most productive uses of Slack that I have had. And so I think it feels a little more human. It's a little more immediate. It's the last trying to get under the buried cacophony of other messages. So I think it's a virtue. (laughs) Great conversation on work. I'm glad we didn't do it over Slack. Me too. I would have been waiting on your three (laughs) dots the whole time. This is so synchronous. (laughs) No, you would have been waiting on my three dots the whole time. (laughs) Hey, we should talk about Patreon where people can support us. But I was going to mention, I can't believe we haven't done a work tech topic like this. Really? I don't feel like, right? So like this may be one of the first times. So we probably have just scratched the surface. So especially our current patrons, we are taking those suggestions specifically for them for future topics they want to hear. So thoughts there. But actually, we'd love to hear from anyone. If you have an additional thought, Instagram message us. And we'd like to see where else we can go next with that. We still have Facebook, right? Do people still use Facebook? (laughs) 